was in plastic parts and a paper plate, of course, still Short and lovable long in the rocks And a couple of kids Cause they don't Living trailers with no class God damn I hope I can't pass Welcome to the Beyond Green Podcast. I believe we're at 23 right now. 23. And it has taken us this long to get the esteemed Corey David into the building. Corey David, say hello. Hey, how's it going? Excellent. Uh, so we're doing something a little different this week. Actually, I shouldn't say that a little different because we did this about two weeks ago with Tim Nash. But this time, uh, we're, what we're doing first, we're going to give we're gonna give you first the interview. Corey and I are going to rehash some of the topics and then we're going to – we'll be done. Um, I should mention uh, beforehand, however, that that was Trailer Trash by Modest Mouse off the top of this – off the top of the show. It was a Corey – it was a Corey request. request. Yep. Yes. Uh, quick rundown on, on the, what the, the viewers will hear or the listeners will hear at the, when the full song plays at the end. Uh, I don't know. It's just a great song about uh, – I don't know, sort of twisted relationship or something like that. Maybe not twisted is the right word, but just sort of – I don't know. Just sort of relationship where it's not perfect, but you kind of kind of like it anyways. Something like that. All right. I don't know. So look forward. Tell me how look, you feel. Yeah, yeah, you guys get comment, guys. Our comment section is back. <laughs> I, that's a huge news. <laughs> up and running. Our comment section is up and running again, which we're very stoked about. Yeah. We are happy that our internet or that our that our website is fixed again, yeah. so you can now comment. So if you listen to the song and you get a completely different understanding of the song <laughs> than Corey did, comment and let us know. That's what we need you guys here for. Uh, but anyways, so, what well, the first is that this is going to be an interview. We're playing an interview. Uh, it's from, it's with Darren did the interview with the people from Extra Credits. Uh, if you aren't familiar with Extra Credits, they are a, quite a popular YouTube channel. Uh, they're, they talk about video games and other types of video games. Why they're important. Um, why they're important, how they can be used. They have a very interesting talk, which I'm, I'm sure in the interview Darren gets to, about education and about how you can use video games to improve the way people learn, improve education. It's very interesting and great. Uh, so these are great guys, super interesting person that, that Darren's talking to. Uh, so without further ado, here's the interview. I read Extra Credit, the web show that tries to understand games and game design and what more we can do with games. For my entire life, I have been a game designer. I've worked on games ranging from Farmville to the Call of Duty series. But I've also spent much of my time trying to teach and trying to reach out to the industry and beyond the industry to use the world's first interactive mass media to do something more than just pastime. Games as a concept have moved well beyond sort of the entertainment of just children to be something, as you mentioned there, things like Farmville that are incredibly pervasive in our daily lives. So can you comment just on the on the, what the state of what is a video game and how does that relate to current culture? All right. So the question of what is a video game is, is a tricky one because it's so expansive at this point. As you probably well know, I mean, at least here in the U.S., we spend literally billions and billions of hours every year playing games. Games have become box office as popular entertainment, right? The biggest entertainment releases in history are all video game releases. So games are no longer a niche product. They're, they are a true mass medium. But 
in becoming a true mass medium, one of the fortunate things that's happened is that people only see or think about games in terms of the major AAA products that you see advertised on television. So we like thinking about movies only as summer blockbusters. And there's so much more that we can do with games and that people are doing with games. Uh, in the last few years, we've moved. When I was started building games, you needed $20 million, a team of 40 people, and you had to be building CPS2. Today, we've had an explosion in ways that we can distribute games, and that's allowed independent developers to have teams of a few people living off $40,000 until they get their games out, and this in turn has let people take risks and explore topics we never thought to explore before and try and understand the human experience through games. One of the issues that we've dealt with on the show, or rather one of the topics we've had on the show recently was, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you were familiar with this specific example, but there was a um, a National Film Board of Canada release called Fort McMoney recently that was billed as a hybrid between a game and a documentary. Uh, our review of this uh, of it was that it was really more of a sort of an interactive documentary that it was necessarily a game by most people's definitions. Um, but can you comment just on that general concept of sort of gamifying just media in general about about that sense of agency as you like to talk about in your videos? Well, and that's the main thing. I think that gamifying is probably the wrong term. Instead, it's this trend towards interactivity. Uh, in the past, most of our media, our audience had to be merely audience. They couldn't be participatory. But now we have the opportunity to bring the audience in and make them a part of the art, give them agency over uh, the things they're experiencing, and let them choose for themselves and discover their own choices rather than simply have an author or a director uh, tell them their thoughts, which is an incredibly powerful thing. It's clearly not going to be the tool for all pieces of art or all media, but you're seeing more and more media start incorporating this when it's appropriate. The way it can add to the experience of art and, in fact, let us explore art in ways we've never been capable of before. One of my favorite episodes that you've uh, that you ever posted, one that I've that I've shared with many of my non-gaming friends, especially I have many friends who are who are in education as a field, um, was your gamifying education episode. Um, can you comment just on what the concept of gamification is? I mean, you've you've alluded there to it a little bit, but maybe within the confines of uh, what you were talking about. And then, how can we gamify education in the sense that? How can this apply to simply helping people learn complex topics and, and reward them and make them feel more involved in their own education, regardless of the topic that we're talking about? Sure. And you're going to dig it in a couple of, might be a month or two now. We've got a whole series. I've got a whole month's worth of uh, episodes about the way that games can be used in education. But in terms of gamifying education, I worry about the term gamification. Because often when people talk about gamification today, they talk about adding point systems, adding levels, that sort of thing, to an existing system. And all this does is create an extrinsic reward, something that essentially pays you for doing an activity rather than making the activity more rewarding in and of itself. And when I talk about gamification, when I talk about making structures more game-like or incorporating play, I really am talking about using all the techniques that we've learned in making entertainment because in the last century, 
we have spent more money than in the rest of human history combined on learning how to engage a human being, right? Between film and television, music and games, we, we really know what makes us compelled. And to use that only to pass the time is to me criminal. And so using some of these techniques in order to improve or make more accessible things like education is vital because a century ago, probably the best thing a kid had to do outside of school was hit a ball with a stick. And even then it was tough to get them to sit down and do their homework, right? And today with YouTube and the internet and movies and games, our leisure time has become so much more exciting, so much more engaging. And our work time, our school time really hasn't. And there's no reason for that. It's not the fault of YouTube and the internet that kids might be distracted from their work. It's the fact that the work is engaging enough. So can you expand on just that idea um, with regards to education? There's, there seems to be, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree, sort of the old idea that, that, you know, things that taste good can't be good for you and things that are fun can't be good for you as well in the sense that they can't be educational. And, and so a lot of people's attitude is that, you know, if it is entertaining, it's not educational. Um, can you comment on, on that relationship between a sense of agency and it's a sense of entertainment and, um, and education as a concept or, and the, just the idea that they're, they're so often seen as opposites rather than complementary. Yeah, to me, I mean, we're stuck in the full Puritan mindset of the fact that everything good has to be bought with suffering. And this, to me, is an antiquated concept. This is a concept that we need to move past because really we're leaving ourselves behind. Um, there's so much that we can do in terms of education. There's so much low-hanging fruit. I mean, even before we do things to make uh, things like education vastly more engaging. It's really simple stuff, stuff that we've learned from games and movies, right? Like, uh, you saw in that episode me talk about grading. We grade in the wrong direction. You never see a game where you start with a million points and just lose points over time. Hmm. And yet, that's how everybody feels when they walk into a classroom. Most students feel like they start with an A and just if they really try, they can tread water, but most of the time just watch themselves fall further and further behind. And instead, if you were just to grade up, if you were to start at zero and watch yourself make progress continuously, we, I mean, we have scientific evidence, right? We have psychological studies which show that humans are more effective when they're watching themselves make progress rather than watching themselves fall behind. And so with relation to, um, sort of more specific environmental type topics. Uh, I, I wouldn't expect you to be an expert on climate change any more than I would hope you expect me to be an expert in your degree on video games. But with, you know, with an understanding of sort of super complex topics uh, where they're, they can be very science heavy, they can be naturally very unintuitive in a lot of senses, but, but things that, that have very tangible and immediate real need for, for our society to deal with these things. Do you think that potentially games or gamifying or gamified concepts could be a way, and, and maybe do you have any suggestions specifically maybe about how these sorts of things can be used to not only educate people about complex topics, but also make them, to give them that sense of agency, like they can actually contribute something to a solution? Well, there's there are two questions there, um, which I really want to go over. Basically, let's 
start with this idea of uh, gamifying complex topics, or at least playing through complex topics. Uh, there is a game called Fate of the World, which is a game about uh, specifically global warming. And you're sort of based in charge of an agency that a global agency to deal with this ever-increasing threat to our world. And I often show it to, when I, when I get time, I try and teach classes at one of the local universities. And I show it to my students. And each year, I see this incredible moment, this incredible learning moment, where uh, the students go in and they try and convert the economy to electric cars. And uh, because we've all heard electric cars are great, right? They they reduce our carbon emissions, all this stuff. And then they have this, this moment where they are so confused because their carbon emissions haven't declined anywhere near what they are uh, thought they were going to. And then they dig in and they, they look through all the data that the game presents them and they figure out that it's because they're still using coal-burning power plants, right? And when you put that much more power energy strain on the energy grid, and you're still using coal-burning plants, well then, you haven't you haven't solved that problem. And so understanding these interlocking complexities is something that games are great for. They give you this eye-opening moment because they are uh, they allow for exploration. They allow for discovery in a way that just a lecture or a textbook never can. And beyond that, uh, they allow you to explore these problems in whatever fashion you decide. They allow for trial and they allow for failure, right? The consequences of global warming are in many ways more visible in a game, in a place where you're invested in trying to save the world than they can ever be in a textbook as tragic as it is that talks about our real world. You might so, you might even say it's an extension between you know the difference between reading about uh, the you know the uh, U.S. and Britain's his and well Canada of course as well but um, you know with history with slavery it's one thing to read about it and it's another thing to go to a museum and see you know all the artifacts and see all that other you know those are the things that you know everybody sort of recognizes that, that you know unfortunately due to financial constraints we can't always do that but that when it is possible that that has a far bigger effect on on allowing people to actually conceptualize the things we're talking about and and I think you and I would agree in this that this is a way to to go potentially not necessarily in a directly straight line better way but in a potentially even more impactful way than that because it actually involves you directly with the material and you get to try out well what would happen if we do this or what would happen if we do that yeah no question um and beyond that you would ask about what is the possibility for getting more people involved in solving some of these problems i don't know if you seen any of the citizen science games like Hold It, but mm. there's a whole host of games which directly present the average person, you and me, citizens, with problems that are that the scientific community is trying to solve. And one of one of the issues that we have now in many scientific endeavors is that we're actually capable of taking in enormous amounts of data, enough data that will grant us the ability to really address some of these issues 
And yet, we do not have enough trained people to look at this data in order to uh, to actually assess it and make any sense of it. And so, for example, there's a game called Folded. Folded's a game about protein folding. And it uh, protein folding really ends up just being a spatial puzzle, um, something that computers are not very good at processing, but it, it's a spatial puzzle. It's an interesting uh, way to to manipulate an object, right? And so this game, by its nature of the game, was able to train people relatively simply to understand these protein folding problems. And in the past, the only people who were trained enough to do it, to really look at these protein folding problems, I mean, there were maybe a few thousand in the U.S., and their time was incredibly expensive. And by making it engaging and presenting simple training, uh, they got tens and tens of thousands of people to look at these and do these problems. And within a few months, they had cracked a protein folding problem, one of the key problems regarding the AIDS virus that had stumped scientists for a decade. So there's immense power in what we do. And, for example, another one is malaria. Um, there are literally millions of blood samples for malaria that just languish uh, in hospitals around the world because the amount of training required to establish whether a blood sample is malarial, while completely nominal, is something that's only given to doctors, really high-paid people. But if you and I were to look at it, within, I mean, seriously, within minutes, you'll be able to tell, oh, this pattern means that this one probably has malaria and we should flag it. The ability to save tens of thousands of lives, I mean, is in part happening because there's a game out there that teaches people to flag malarial samples and, uh, I mean, it's in some ways an interesting visual puzzle, and people are doing it, right? And so this can be used across across the spectrum, whether it's everything from understanding our galaxy better to better understanding how our world, how global warming affects our world, right? And so there's lots of ways that games can also get involved in science and involved in global warming. So we've talked about things like uh, uh, th- visual problem solving and how people, once sort of the initial intake of what are the requirements of what needs to be the output and sort of what are all the variables, all the programming aspects, how this can actually engage people directly with sort of advanced level scientific research by by, by crowdsourcing, if you will, uh, some of the work that can actually be easier for an untrained human to do than it is for a highly, you know, a super expensive computer to do. Uh, you've also talked about the ability of um, games to be used as an educational tool, so to make people feel, uh, to interact in sort of self-directed learning and some of these other great concepts that you discuss in some of your videos. Uh, there's a third aspect which I, which I just wanted to bring up and ask you about, which was also the sort of the idea of like sub- subversive learning almost, which uh, uh, a game I had an experience with uh, that I was playing on my tablet uh, that I rather enjoy. They've just released a new version on Steam, actually, but it's called Plague Inc., uh, and I was doing an interview a few months ago with someone about the Ebola virus. And uh, and I'd realized about halfway through the interview, and I mentioned it during the interview, of course, but I'd realized halfway through the interview that a lot of the language that I was able to use and, and a lot of the concepts that I was able to apply to help me ask and have an interesting conversation with someone who is an expert on this topic 
was actually through playing this game. And I've now gotten into a habit now where I sort of, you know, if I get on a plane or if I go into a public space, I'm just automatically thinking about vectors and people wiping their noses and all these sorts of things. And it almost like there wasn't really an intention through that game to sort of teach anything necessarily. In fact, you're actually playing as the virus to try and wipe out all life on Earth. But yet it still had a very interesting sort of addition to my conceptual ability to visualize these types of things, as well as sort of teach some basic knowledge, uh, even though that was not really the explicit purpose of the game. Well, it's interesting this concept of diverse learning, as you call it, because games are incredibly powerful by just the amount of investment they get out of it and by their nature as an interactive medium. Uh, I mean, it happens across the board. It's not only games like this, but I mean, how much I run into kids all the time who become interested in history through civilization, right? I, uh, I, I was in Brazil and met a group of students who were doing high level math because they needed it for the World Warcraft build. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've even seen the dullest of topics, city planning, made interesting by what we do, right? And beyond that, there is there is just a wealth of knowledge out there and a wealth of practices which are of high value. You watch kids play League of Legends and they're practicing their teamwork and coordination skills, skills which are essential in the 21st century, essential if we're going to solve any of these problems. Um, and so I love I love that aspect of games. I love this idea of subversive learning, but there's a danger, which is that right now we have this problem of transference. Mm. We have a problem that very often those kids who are doing the high-level math for World of Warcraft, they actually didn't know. They didn't relate it to the stuff they were doing on their math test, and so didn't get very good scores on math until someone made that connection to them. Um, and just like you with this, with Plague Inc., um, until you had that experience talking with this fellow, you may not have had, made that connection. And so all the time, because we've trained our audience that games are just a pastime, games are just for fun, we um, sort of have this problem that people check out, that people don't always get all the valuable things. I mean, there's immense amounts of glorious history in things like Assassin's Creed, and yet so many players of it uh, may not pick up on them. And while, so while this is such a powerful tool, and I mean, in terms of power, it's unbelievable. I go to these conventions, and I'll be talking to a room, and I'll ask everybody, so how many Pokemon do you know? And I'll go 10, and they'll just see of hands, right? 15, 20, 50, <laughs> 100. I'll hit 200, I'll still have like hundreds of hands up. And think about how much raw data that is, right? Think about how much it is that people learn just because they wanted to, not because anyone sat them down or gave them the test, right? I mean, it's the same with anything that has that level of entertainment, whether it be knowing all the stats for a sports team or knowing the activities of your favorite movie stars, right? Because when we're engaged, we learn voluntarily so much faster and so much more. We retain so much more. But because of this bias against uh, entertainment, against this, things which are enjoyable, we have this problem that a lot of the times people don't make the connection between things they learn in the game, 
transferring to the real world. And so while I think it's an incredible and powerful part of the game, I think it's one of the things that we have to understand and work on as industry, how to achieve that transference better uh, in order to for it to reach its maximum potential. Do you think there's any sort of obligation on on behalf of designers to 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 be investing some of these concepts into games, or or is this sort of the realm of uh, you know educational activists like yourself, <laughs> if you, if you I would phrase yourself that, that way? There's always a place for the summer blockbuster, right? I would never say that I want to get rid of or say that everyone has an obligation to make sure that every product has something that. Well, that's not true. I guess I would say that every product should have something of redeeming value, right? Even all the best summer blockbusters do have something they teach us about about our best personal characteristics, even if it's just in the lightest, silliest ways, right? Um, and so, yeah, I would never want to get rid of our our most entertaining entertainment, right? I don't think that that should ever be our goal, but I do think that as an industry, as a whole, for too long we've been hiding behind the field of we're just making games. We, we make a product for kids, right? It's time that we really do step up to the responsibility of looking into and taking risks on some of these more valuable things, on the things that lead you to something when you turn off the machine and get up off the couch. So there's just there's just a couple of things left I'd like to ask you about. Uh, thank you very 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 much for your time today. Um, but specifically, there's two things left that I that I'd really like to touch on. One of them you mentioned a moment ago, which was the uh, the whole massive culture around games like World of Warcraft. There are you know it's, it's something that people who aren't into that sort of thing uh, very readily sort of scoff. But at the same point, I mean there's there's millions and millions of players who play these games. The ones that World of Warcraft fit into is uh, for people who aren't gamers or generally referred to as MMORPGs or massively multiplayer online role-play games what the, the thing i wanted to ask you about with that was that you know we have uh, we're we're quickly sort of the the boundaries between countries as far as social culture um have been globalizing very rapidly over the last number of years particularly in pace with the expansion of uh both global trade but also global media and global entertainment and and information sharing and do you think that in any way, these sorts of cultures, because, you know, you don't necessarily know where somebody's logging in from. You don't necessarily know what their primary language is because you can't hear an accent. Um, you don't know a lot about sort of who they are other than sort of what they choose to be doing. And they might even be doing it through a role-playing scenario uh, where they may be even pretending to be someone other than themselves in a way. What, In what way, if at all, do you think that these sorts of games that that have a very heavy emphasis on social culture and about community within these digital lands... Um, have contributed to sort of the globalization of culture in general and, and breaking down some of these social barriers. For that, I'll give you a story of this young woman who came up to me at one of the conventions, and she told me the story about her time with World Warcraft. She was in college, and all she wanted to do was go to her classes and come back and play her game. And she wasn't very aware of anything outside the U.S. or about world events in general. And so she was playing and she had reached the highest level and was playing with the guild and they'd go raid regularly. And then one of her guildmates just stopped showing up to the raid. And he wasn't there for a week. 
and then three, and then three. And then she started looking into it. And she tried to find out who he was and talked to everybody who, who had known him. And he was actually living in Baghdad. And he got hit in, in one of the strikes. And this got her involved in first in things about our conflict in the Middle East, heavily involved. And then when she walked up to me just a few years later, and she was actually running a campaign for one of her senators. And so I think that having these shared experiences and understanding do act that we're all just people, right? That across the globe we have more similarities than differences is a powerful thing. And I think that the way that games level the playing field and allow us all to have those interactions is incredibly important for the future. All right, so that was the uh, that was the interview right there. But what we're talking about, what we're talking about for the last 15 minutes, and Corey and I are going to get back about it, is the sense of agency yeah. uh, and the importance of feeling you, have, uh, uh, feeling you can change the world, which I think is really important. I think it, how it ties into the environment, uh, which I'm sure was a point was already made, is that environmentalists often feel like they don't have any power. Or people often feel, people in our democracy often feel they don't have, have, have any power. Yeah, like, I go vote. Exactly. Especially in the mayoral election. Yeah. It's like 20, like, I, remember I was talking to, a, I was talking to a person recently who actually works, uh, has run on, run mayoral races and stuff like that before. And he was saying how annoying mayoral races are because they're won or lost by like 5,000 votes. Yeah. Which you can like, which you could talk to in a day. Like, it's like, yeah. it's, it's such a small set of people yeah. that you're voting, are actually voting for these things that it's, it's amazing when you have voting booths in your apartment building and you still don't go down and vote. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, well it's, it speaks to the sense that you... Yeah, that. maybe people don't feel like they can do anything with, the, with their vote. Maybe they think it doesn't matter. Maybe they feel like they can do more with just living their life the way they want to live it instead of deciding on people who are running their city and such. Yeah, well, especially if you don't think anyone's different from each other. That's yeah. the big thing, right? Like, if you, it's really hard to have a sense of agency if you yeah. think everyone's the same. What shade of gray do you want? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is a very common thread you see all over the yeah. place. Um... But yeah, so, and then what's interesting, you, you mentioned the idea of, this, of people thinking they can have more effect outside of the political spectrum. Um, and what's interesting is, what I got from that immediately when you said it was in the private sector, not in sort of physical activism. Because yeah. <laughs> physical activism almost Money talks, feels, yeah. Well, exactly. Um, and, it, and, and physical activism, I think, I guess we sort of tie into democracy as sort of part, that, that's taking act, action in democracy. Yeah. Whereas the sort of private is like outside of the, you know, well, ignore the fact that in the States, money is speech. And so, <laughs> so people yeah. talk about that a lot. I'm sure a lot of people care about, about, especially university students and such, care about things that aren't related to, you know, economics or whatever, except for economic students. But, uh, yes, yeah. so you think you hope they would, they would have a more bias towards economics. Maybe they want to change things. Well, that's true. <laughs> Probably not. Most nope. of the economic students I know. Yeah, that's true. But we also have, it's interesting, I've, I've been doing some work um, writing some stuff about, about economics. And it's, I've got, well, one, I've talked to Tim Nash, sustainable economist, which we had it on the, on the podcast a couple weeks ago, which right. is great. <laughs> and, and another one, uh, some comment today being like, oh, man, I wish they talked about, like, Tim Nash's big thing is about having a whole set of new, like, basically teaching environment as a part of economics to some extent. Yeah. Um, or at least that's a part of what he does. Yeah. Um, there's a whole, but there's a whole side that does actually. But anyways, the... What's interesting is that people often think that they have more agency within private spheres than they do public. Mm -hmm. 
Um, things happen faster sometimes. There's less red tape, maybe. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah, we have more direct control. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's that, there's that, that sort of, um, sort of action. And I think that, that a big part of our society, you know, I'm sure a big part of what, what we're always trying to figure out is how to make more people, like basically to how to make people feel like they have agency. Like, how can I convince you, well, Corey, not, that not you... feel how to give them... How to make them know that they have agency. Yes. Make them not just feel it, but right. just actually have them have them see results of their agency. You know, right. things that they want to happen that should be made to happen or whatever. Mm. As long as it's within reason, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? Do you, yeah. Do you you know about the tragedy of the commons or whatever? I don't know. Mm. There was an economist that, economist that wrote that or whatever or talked yeah. about that. And that's, that's I don't know, that's one of my favorite examples of... Um, just people's effect on the world around them because it's like, you know, we have all this shared resource and we can really make good use of it or whatever, but if, if it's there, people are just going to use it no matter what, right? Like, yeah. like if, and if you want to protect it and you're like, well, then I won't use so much of it, then someone else is just going to come and use it anyways. So yeah. and it's just well, like, well, we might as well use it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, what's, what's so interesting about that, which I find so funny, yeah. is that history actually doesn't agree with that idea. Apparently in history, if you go back to those actual towns um, where where they had these sets of commons, yeah. a lot of the times that didn't happen. And in fact, a lot of the times they actually worked very well together and were actually able to keep it keep it. Yeah. There's an article I read in like, yeah. I think, third or fourth year uh, yeah. called In Defense of the Commons, yeah. which was exactly about this. Yeah. Um, but exactly, but the, but the Treasure Commons is the, is the epitome of conservative thinking. Yeah. It's the epitome of economic thinking. Yeah. Uh, in that sort of, you know, if you don't get yours, someone else is getting something. Yeah. And it completely shits on the idea of collaboration yeah. in any real way. Like, unless, yeah. you know, it's mutual beneficial collaboration, but then someone else has to be losing. It's a very odd, odd system. Um, even yeah. though, even though, you know, I, it's the, you know, worst system at, except for all the others. Well, I don't know, but except for all <laughs> the others. Yeah, there you go. It's the, yeah, uh, I think that's, well, that's what, I think that's Chamberlain on democracy. But I mean... This speaks to how everyone, I mean, everyone wants different things, right? And so kind of like everyone has to kind of come to an understanding of, of what they can get, of, yeah. of like what's available to them and and their ability to get that, right? Because like, I don't know, I guess someone could get everything. Like you look at some nations and they're run by one person, right? Or whatever. Right. So they have total control pretty much of, I don't know, millions of people in a way. I mean, obviously if something happened, like I'm sure those people would stand up and, yeah. and rebel. Like if you look at like the Arab Spring and stuff or whatever, like that's just one <laughs> example, but it's not even a great example. But, um, it, I mean, the thing is, the thing that I think drives people to have agency is importance, right? Like, if people are satisfied in their mundane lives or whatever, I mean, we all have mundane lives, we're all human, <laughs> but um, if people are satisfied in their life, then they're not really going to go out and try to change things, because, I mean, I mean, the world is kind of tough, and, and they also portray that image of it always being hard, right? And there's so many things that support you, like, not doing anything. Mm. Like, like I, I talked right. to you the other day about that Just Eat ad where it's just like, don't <laughs> don't cook, don't do anything, just call us and we'll bring you food. And it's just like, like okay, well then, you know, that's great. But, but I don't know. I want to see people actually take initiative of their own life and, and try to, I don't know, try, try to learn that they can – they can control a lot of their own life through just, I don't know, the thing, the little things they do. I'm always like, I don't know how you feel good about grassroots. I feel good about grassroots. I think that's one of the best ways to go forward in life and just, just try to build yourself up and, and do what you can. And, you know, I think these big organizations and stuff like business and government and whatever, like I want to be a part of that too. Cause like you can't control things yourself. You're just one person, right? Like that's why these things are there. Cause it's complicated and, and you're trying to support whole civilizations. Right. Mm -hmm. 
but to just do what you can to make your life easier and maybe the people around you's life easier, whatever, that you agree with, you know, fuck the people you don't agree with. But, <laughs> but I'm going to go on a t-shirt, Corey. <laughs> fuck the people you don't agree with. This is, this is going to be in big well, block letters. Maybe you can just show in them. white on a blue t-shirt. <laughs> it's going to be gorgeous. And on the back, it just says, you just say, show them a better way. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, yeah, actions speak louder than words mm-hmm. and just... That's true, but I think that speaks directly to the idea that like there are there are people who, through whatever circumstances, think that that won't do anything. Like even like anything you like, which you know is self defeatist to some extent, because if you accept that whatever you do won't do anything, then nothing will happen anyways. Yeah. So you're proving yourself right in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's plenty of people who like to sit back and sort of be like, well, you know. Every politician is exactly the same. Yep, like, Every business goes leader on, is out to destroy no. you. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I, what I find, I find so interesting is that people sort of choose where they want to sort of feel like they have agency. Like, you know, the, how many economists or how many sort of business types understand climate change exists, but sort of like, ah, but we can't actually do anything. That's going to be too much work. That's uh, what, what can I personally do to stop this? I, I can't do anything. Yeah. But that same person might be also at the same time be like, I can't, I, I can take over. I can, you know, like I can, I can I run this business. I, I can, can run make this, good choices. Exactly. I can, I can make us money. I can, I can, yeah, I don't know. I can create a big, good business model. Or like I, I can completely control the fact, like the energy markets within. <laughs> like if, you, if you scale this up to some of the oil companies. Yeah, it's like, let's not invest like, in this. Let's. Yeah. Well, like you scale up to some oil, oil companies who have billions of dollars and they're basically like, yeah, well, we, I was like, what can we really do? We can't. <laughs> Like you know, there's a for-profit Change motive. Is hard. There's the for-profit motive that these that these companies have, obviously. But there's like what they're doing, what they could be doing, are two very different things. Yeah. And it's just sort of like you know, it's you have you choose where you want to have agency. It's and by and that choice really is actually just the, the defining your life. Yeah. Choosing where you think you can change something is you know, like maybe you you will fail, but that's what how you define your life yeah. is. What do you want to try to change? Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Finding a purpose, finding... I mean, I find it so hard in my life to find something that I even care about enough to do it. It's... I don't know. I just kind of go on. You know what I saw today? I saw a Tesla when I was driving home. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It was a pretty cool car. Like, it's fully electric, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty awesome. So I saw that out on the road. I was like, that's good, you know. He freaking beat me at the lights, too, like crazy. <laughs> Those things accelerate pretty fast. Yeah. But, you know, that's something you can do. Maybe the guy doesn't care about the environment. Maybe he just wants a cool car. I don't know. But either way, it's a, it's a... It's something good. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's yeah. a super cool car. Like, and, and it's exactly it's it's something good. It's something to look to. It's like man, and you know, it's interesting. Electric cars are now outselling hybrids in the states. Yeah, that's interesting. Which is, you know, I think. The, I think it makes uh, sense. You know, I mean, for city commuting and such, like you don't, you don't need gas. Like the Tesla yeah. can go. I don't know what the hell I saw. I looked at the website today. It's like four hundred kilometers or something. Oh, wow. on a charge. Yeah. I'm like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like. Is it four o'clock? No, I don't know what I saw. Anyways, it, it it was pretty substantial though. Right. It was it was like the size of a gas tank. Like well, I filled my mom's car up yesterday to go to the uh, cottage, which is like two hundred kilometers away, mm. and I got there and back on one tank, which is pretty good. It's a Honda Civic. It's a small car. Yeah. It's only me and then me and the dog on the way back. <laughs> so I don't know, but um, yeah, doing good things, doing what you. I think I think the most important thing to do mm. to affect your world is just doing what you think is right mm. and not compromising. I think compromise is the killer, yeah. and that's I think that's what a lot of people do in their lives. Mm-hmm. That that kind of I don't I don't want to say ruins or whatever, but like <laughs> I don't know. Never settle, Corey. Never settle. Yeah, it's true. I think I think 
if you know you don't want it, but you don't know what you're going to get. Mm. I mean, I just, why would you even take it though? Cause you <laughs> like, you don't want it anyways. Like what? it's just, it's just like waste to you. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, it's good for now. It's like, you, you know, you got your whole life to live and, and you want it. And like, I, like I said, I think you should do what you think is right and do what you, do what you want. Mm. Uh, all right. So any so any final thoughts? We're now at we're not, we're, we've, we're right around the t- good time to go. Yeah. Uh, so you, you want to give us some final thoughts, there, Corey? I'll say some final thoughts, and then we'll play us out of that. All right. Sounds good. Um, just uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> just just I like to think about like the only the only thing you control in your own life is yourself, right? I mean, like you can you could say you could control other people and stuff like that, but you you really can't. And if you are, you're being an asshole. <laughs> like if, if you want to manipulate people and 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 do that kind of thing, you're just you're just being a jerk. <laughs> and so the only thing that you can really control in your life is yourself, you know. And then through that, you can really you can really change a lot of the things around you. You can inspire people, or people you can get people to hate you, or or whatever. <laughs> but I mean, you, you can do both those things. That's very accurate. yeah, yeah. But I mean. I mean, trying to trying to control everything else like it's just futile. Like I remember, just thinking when I was a teenager and and just and just like being in a relationship and just kind of like like wanting to control that relationship and just just wanting to wanting things to be my way or whatever. And it's just it just led to a lot of like miserable times. And so now I just try to worry about myself and and I don't know. I I don't think I am changing the world in any great way, but I just think that that my world, the world I have, is you know the one I want or the one I want enough for now. You know, <laughs> whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything. I just talk. <laughs> well, that was a but those are my uh, yeah. There we go. I don't know anything, man. I really the, that should be that should really be how we sign off every single one of these talks, which is I don't know anything. I just talk. Yeah. But that's what I think. <laughs> it's, it's it's perfect. It's literally all we do here. Um, uh, I don't want to speak for for Darren. So maybe Darren maybe Darren thinks he does know something. You guys know um, stuff. I mean, yeah. yeah, I'm just, you know. You guys know guys. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anyways, yeah. Uh, so agency and the environment, I think this is something that we must figure out. And agency in society generally also, I think, I really do think, and I'm surely touching this in the in the, in the interview, um, a country that has a sense of agency will be dramatically happier. If you can give anyone a sense of agency in any way, you will improve yeah. their lives and you will improve the lives of everyone else's. Yeah. Cool fact that I will leave you with. Um, now I forget the country. Canada. <laughs> I want to say it's. I, I want to say Belgium, Denmark. Denmark. It's Denmark. It's totally Denmark. Denmark's a happy place. Denmark's a great place. Not as happy as Canada. I'll take that, Denmark. <laughs> um, but I think it's Denmark. So don't come us. There is a country. I think it's Denmark. But again, somewhere in that. Europe I don't area. know anything. <laughs> this is just what I think. There is a country in that area uh, which any corporation has to have. One third of its board members, like they control it, be employees of that corporation. Like, like a middle management of corporate. That's a way to give people agency. That's yep. a way to pay for people's lives. Representation. Yeah. I don't know how this is gonna, how that anything we just said there tied into the to the route we were earlier. But anyways, this is going to be trailer trash by Monasas to play us out. Thanks for being here, Corey. Yep. Thanks for having Have me. a good one, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> Living trailers with no class God damn, I hope I can pass high school Taking heartache with hard work God damn, I am such a jerk I can't
And it's been a long time Which agrees with this watch of mine And I know that I miss you And I'm sorry if I dissed you I'm sorry if I dissed you. 